This interview is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon as a basis for investment decisions. In Practice is an independent publisher and all opinions expressed by guests are solely their own opinions and do not reflect the opinion of In Practice. Can we take a step back to the 90s and can you provide some context to the the structure and of the UK leisure market? Yeah, seems a long time ago now, but uh, yes, I started my first business, uh, Dragons Health Clubs, back in 1991. Very different market then. I mean, the market was dominated by mid-market operators. The low-cost sector didn't exist. So rather like you see now, there was no Little and Aldi or EasyJet or Ryanair, but there was no Gym Group or Pure Gym at that point. So the market was very much dominated by Fitness First, LA Fitness, David Lloyd Leisure, and a sporter, which was interestingly a business I uh, went on to run towards the end of the decade. So um, very different market. And so these are mainly like kind of mid-market gyms affecting the, what they are today? Yeah, I mean, the, the the focus was on predominantly a family market and providing a wide cross-section of uh, facilities. So obviously gyms, classes, but swimming, food and beverage, beauty therapy, retail. So it was very much targeted at the family market, as is David Lloyd today, um, which is very much their focus. But interestingly, as happens in markets, I mean, Fitness First were the biggest operator at that point. And it's interesting that now, you know, LA Fitness has disappeared completely um, and and Fitness First has sort of been, has LA Fitness been bought out by predominantly low-cost operators. What did you learn in those early days running Dragons that you took on to the gym group? I mean, obviously, obviously quite a lot. I mean, it was, you know, the first time I'd set up a business and started trading it. So marketing particularly, um, I think probably the most important thing is learning the importance of your customer base and looking after the customer. I mean, at the end of the day, they are what enable you to be successful and survive. So putting them at the forefront of everything you do is sort of key. As I said, marketing, I mean, how you market that membership base, you know, how you entice people to join your facility as opposed to somebody else's, it's fairly key. But I would say that probably the biggest lesson I learned was and it may sound self-evident, but how important site management is. And certainly as you start to build a chain of sites, it's critical that you surround yourself by high-caliber local management. And a lot of operators get that wrong, and they believe that they can successfully run a business from the center. In my experience, that doesn't work. You, You... it, what is essential is recruiting the very best local management that you can afford. So how do you 
incentivize those site managers. So I assume you have one site manager per gym that effectively manages the gym. They charge of marketing, you know, and operating the gym. Absolutely. And and I suppose that's the key differential. So my belief, I mean, I, it applies just as much to Dragons as it does today to the gym group, is empowering managers to manage their individual sites and to make them totally responsible for everything that happens in them. So obviously they're financially responsible. They're responsible for marketing, sales, cleaning, maintenance, etc. Now, that doesn't mean they don't get support. Of course, they do from the centre. But ultimately, they are responsible for that. Let, let, me, let me give you a really good example of it. I can remember when we um, had our third site at uh, Vauxhall, a helicopter, unfortunately, crashed into the building that we operated, which meant that obviously the building, you know, our gym was immediately closed. The manager immediately arranged uh, for our members at that particular site to use a nearby site as well. They arranged that. They'd communicated that by text and email to everybody within 15 minutes of the incident occurring. Now, for me, that's a really good example of good quality local management. It didn't take a week for head office to sort it out. It was dealt with literally in a matter of minutes. And how do you incentivize and compensate the the general managers of sites? So I've always had a, a belief in, first of all, making sure they're properly rewarded. So... We tend to, will pay our management slightly above the going rate. But then probably most important of all, giving them a really effective bonus structure. So involving the management in the whole process of budgeting for a site, agreeing the targets for that individual site, and then giving them good financial rewards for actually delivering those results and also not just doing that on an annual basis so uh, for instance our bonus scheme actually you know is paid out to our managers on a quarterly basis so if they've had a really good you know January February and March you know at the end of March they get a bonus for that effort I always feel it's important that bonuses are timely. You know, if you just do it at the end of the year, I mean, there is an annual element to any bonus scheme. But if you only do it at the end of the year, you know, people have forgotten about the efforts they put in nine months previously. So I think having a bonus scheme that rewards people annually, but also quarterly as well, is critical. And what are the key metrics at the at the site level that the managers get conversated on? So obviously revenue, profit is the major one, return on investment, so that they have a real benefit in every aspect of running a site. So as we talked about revenue, et cetera, but also, you know, if they turn unneeded lights off, they're contributing to their bonus scheme. So, they really are rewarded out of keeping control 
over income, but also cost. Right, but this is not in terms of the capex. So let's say it costs one point three, one point four million to build the the plot. They they're not involved in that because they have no say over the I guess the development cost. But it's more on the operational once it's up and running. No, I mean we do involve them in things like the gym equipment that will go into their sites because we do believe that you know every site is slightly different, the demands are slightly different. And, of course, our managers should be the people who understand that better than anybody else. But obviously, you know, in terms of purchasing, it is inevitably much more cost-effective to do that centrally. So, obviously, that enables us to negotiate, um, obviously, things like gym equipment, but everything else as well, like lockers or flooring or air conditioning plant, etc., is all was going to be better purchased centrally. How do you train your general site managers to to keep those costs low? Is it just a, is it just in your character? Is it in the person's character to have that mindset to turn the lights off when they're not needed? And or, or can you or do you have processes to train them? Well, first of all, it'll be part of the recruitment process. So we're looking for managers that have those skills and may well have learned those skills working for different businesses. I mean, a lot of our management, though they will have a gym qualification, may come from retail or hospitality or you know other businesses, generally multi-site, but um, and generally where they're you know used to dealing with the importance of customer interaction, but. To be honest, whether they've worked in a cinema or a temp in bowling alley or a restaurant isn't necessarily terribly important. And which costs for the general site manager the hardest to actually keep down? Well, one of the things about low cost is that low cost sits absolutely at the core of everything that the business does. So the design of the facility is designed to be cost effective you know to maximize um how you you know reduce energy costs water use etc cetera, etc cetera. so the part of the key to it is actually building it into the initial design then there is also the way you operate so just just giving a good example of this that we use regularly as um a good example. If you took most mid-market operators, they spend about 25 to 30% of their turnover on staffing. We spend about 6%. Now, ironically, we do that by partly the way we operate, but also the way we use things like CCTV and technology generally to reduce the staffing requirement. And then there is a huge focus on providing exactly what the customer wants, but not spending a lot of money on things they don't want. So a low-cost gym is that. It it provides excellent gym equipment, but it doesn't have swimming pools or tennis courts or retail areas, all of which absorb, in our view, unnecessary cost, staffing costs, energy costs, and so on. So... 
the culture really starts right from the beginning and is, is, is an integral part of everything the business does. And so from an organizational structure point of view, what, how many staff do you have on the ground per site? And is it only one manager per site or do, they, do the general site managers manage more than one site in their area? So we have a manager and an assistant manager on in every single site. And then you have a team of personal trainers who spend part of their time working for us, but they're also self-employed and carry out their own sort of personal training sessions for members. So about a third of our members do personal training. So personal trainers will spend part of their time doing things like cleaning and showing prospective members round, but they will spend the bulk of their time carrying out personal training and also inductions for new members. So that's a, so it's a, a combination of full-time management plus a personal training team. And then we outsource certain other aspects, things like cleaning. All of our sites operate with contract cleaners. And so how does the personal training work? So they're not actually, they're not actually full-time employees. They're self-employed, but they also do some duties on part of their contract with you is that they do the inductions or show people around to have the right to kind of serve your members? So typically our gyms have about 10 to 12 personal trainers a site. Each of those personal trainers will spend about 10 to 15 hours physically working for us. And during that time, you know, we do... Obviously, they work for us, but they also, you know, engage in training programs and so on. And then the rest of their time, they will spend on personal training. And in that period, they are self-employed and very much their relationship is direct with the customer. Right. So you pay them a, a, a wage as an, as an individual or part-time worker for, that, for those 10 to 15 hours and the rest of the time they... They train your members, yep, and they train them in the in the gym. Um, they can take them outside the gym. I mean, you know, I mean, obviously, if the weather's better, you know, they may take a member out for a run or some, you know, some outside training. But generally speaking, most of the personal training is done in the gym itself. How important is that personal training side of of your offering? As I said, about a third of our members partake in personal training. It's one of the things that we've seen bolster the low-cost sector because what we do see is a lot of people giving up, you know, more expensive memberships costing over £100 a month, joining one of our gyms for about £20 a month, and then spending what they've saved on personal training. And of course, for a lot of people, they find they need that, you know, one-to-one stimulus of a personal trainer to enable them to achieve the goals they're trying to achieve by joining a gym. So we've seen quite a lot of uh, our membership base coming from particularly the mid-market where they want to, you know, access that personal training. And they're not bothered about swimming or or tennis etc 
So they, you know, their major focus is gym training. And if you look at most of the Mintel reports that cover this sector, they tell you that over 70% of people who use health clubs or leisure centres only ever use the gym area itself. Moving on to look at the competitive landscape, and how would you how would you compare and contrast the gym group and Pure Gym? I mean, it's interesting. I get asked this question a lot. Actually, the reality is there isn't a huge difference between the two. I mean, there are differences. You know, our branding is different to theirs. But fundamentally, we operate on a very similar basis. We're both technology-driven businesses. We both are focused on providing an online experience in terms of joining. I mean, we even buy the same gym equipment. So I'd find it quite difficult to sort of try and persuade you that there's a huge difference between the two. And that's probably emphasized by... The fact, I mean, albeit it's a while ago now, but back in 2013, before we listed on the stock market, we did actually consider merging with Pure Gym. And um, if the CMA had agreed to that, the two businesses would be, you know, one entity today. That didn't happen. But, you know, there isn't a, a very significant difference. And I suppose it's a little bit like, you know, would you consider Lidl and Aldi to be terribly different? You know, Ryanair and EasyJet are different, but they are fundamentally very similar. And Pure Gym and the Gym Group are fundamentally very similar. And that's so similar in square footage and the formats and and locations you use for plots? Yeah, very much so. I mean, similar sort of size. And they, that comparison isn't just, with pure gem i mean if you look at the international low cost operators people like basic fit who are the biggest european operator planet fitness in america you know they operate very similar size facilities so typically around 1500 square meters or about you know 15 or 16000 square foot of space is fairly typical internationally that certainly would be true where you're comparing the gym group um, and pure gym. How do you compare the pricing of the gym group and pure gym? Again, very similar. I mean, typically around £20 a month. It, it does differ inevitably based on location. So pure gym bought a lot of sites from LA Fitness, so they have more, a few more London sites than we do. Inevitably, you know, running costs in London are higher. And so, as you would expect, membership rates are higher. But on average, you know, across the whole country, um, you know, pricing is very similar. And how do you look at setting the price per per, per gym in, in a region? It, it's very much set site by site. Because it depends on competition, inevitably. So, you know, what other competition is there in the market? And that's not just other low-cost competition. You know, what are the premium operators? What are they charging? 
what what does the local authority market charge in that particular location and also how many competitors are there for you know customers so pricing will be very much sort of driven by local environments now i quite often use um you know a comparison say between i can remember when we opened you know our first site in brighton you know we were charging 15 pounds a month the local david lloyd center was just over 70 pounds a month if you took exactly the same facility to liverpool for instance the david lloyd site in Liverpool is about £45 a month. So it's £30 a month cheaper. And therefore, our pricing structure is different. So it, it is very much based by you know local markets. And of course, that's one of the big advantages of having an online business that, I mean, we can change the price at a site literally in a matter of minutes. If, you know, if we want to run a particular type of promotion, um, or you know, we need you know we want to consider either putting the price up or down. You know, the, the benefit of an online business is the ability to do that very quickly. And so, the difference in the average price per member for Pure versus the Gym Group is 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 mainly just a function of the fact that Pure Gym is has more prods in London at this point. Yes, and that skews their overall pricing. Because they've got more sites. I mean, their their London sites charge more, and therefore that skews the average revenue per member. But as I said, if you applied that nationally, you know, there's not a huge difference to you know the average pricing. And so, do you set the the price based on a target return on invested capital and maturity of that plot? So, you know, take a London site charging 20 quid a month versus one in Liverpool charging 12 or 13 or 14, they'd be the same unit economics. Yeah, I mean, obviously, they differ on a side-by-side basis. So out of London, you know, rent is tends to be cheaper. You know, running costs, generally speaking, are cheaper outside London. You know, staffing costs, for instance, are, you know, a bit more expensive uh, in London than they are elsewhere. So... All of those factors go into it. And as you'll have seen from our financial reporting, one of the key measures that people look at, but particularly related to low cost, is the average return on capital uh, at maturity. So we define a mature site as being a gym that's been open for more than two years. And as you'll have seen from our financial data, you know, we produce an average of over 32% return on capital on average per site across the whole estate. And is there any difference in that return on invested capital for London versus out of London? We don't We don't separate it. And, you know, it, it is similar because you just have different metrics. I mean, you charge more, but the rent rent's higher and so on and so forth. So your cost base is higher, but your turnover is higher. The net effect is very similar. But we don't separate that in terms of our reporting. And in terms of when you change the pricing, so let's say you've got a mature gym, you know, 6,000 members, 
you know, two to three years in and the, the relative position of the gym group hasn't, hasn't changed much versus pure or the mid market or the David Lloyd's, for example, when do you choose to increase the price? Is it based on capacity or how do you choose to flex that? Yeah, I mean, it'll be based on, on the, all sorts of factors. I mean, inevitably, capacity has an impact because if a gym is particularly full and particularly because low-cost gyms tend not to have membership contracts, so if the customer isn't happy with the service they provide or if a gym they might you know, consider to be overcrowded, you know, they, they can leave. I mean, you know, it's not something we obviously want them to do, but because we don't have any membership tie-in, you know, members can join for a day or a month or any length of period they th- that suits them. So we can use pricing to impact on demand. So if we've got a gym that is, in our view, nearing capacity, we will use price to help us control that capacity. But do you always look for a, a minimum gap between the mid-market players and, and and relative to Pure Gym as well? We would expect to be similar to Pure Gym. But as I said, looking at Pure Gym is only one of the factors that we use to look at pricing. I mean, you know, and we also look at, you know, other operators. We will also consider what we are choosing ourselves. I mean, you know, as you know, we have 184 sites throughout the UK. So if you took a time like Brighton, you know, we have four gyms in Brighton. You know, we have nearly 50 sites in Greater London. So actually our greatest competitor can be one of our own gyms. You know, if you took our site at Vauxhall, the nearest gym to Vauxhall is our, our own gym at Stockport. So we also have to take into account, you know, the pricing of our sites and at what capacity those sites are at as well. How do you think about strategically rolling out new gyms? And, and more specifically, for example, would you build a new gym next to a pure gym or in the same small town as a pure gym? Or how do you look at that kind of competitive landscape? Well, I think you covered one of the topics is the size of the market. So you said a small gym. I mean, if if it was a small town, you know, with a relatively small population, are we likely to build a gym right next door to a pure gym? No, um, highly unlikely. But, you know, in obviously big cities like where, where you will find the bulk of Pure Gyms and the gym group, as we have commented on a number of occasions, you know, we, we can have a gym, you know, that might be less than a mile apart. And both of them will be successful because they even within a mile, you know, you are serving a different market. So, let me give you, I mean, Brighton, again, is quite a good example. We opened our first gym near Kemptown. Our second gym's uh, less than a mile away uh, on the London Road. And they just service different markets within the Brighton community. You know, the London Road site, for instance, has a lot more student members. Um, so, you know, 
Stockwell and Vauxhall, you know, they're one tube stop across apart. And, and that is very common in London. And, you know, one tube stop is enough to create a different market. But it's interesting because effectively in the more suburban or rural areas of the UK, the gyms become somewhat of a monopoly in the low-cost centre because if, if there's a pure gym in a town that has 50, 60, even a, you know, 70,000 people, like, would you go and build a, a, a gym group next door? I don't think we'd likely to build it next door because all you end up doing is can, cannibalising each other's potential market. But I, I think the point I'm trying to make is that in a market of that sort of size, you would certainly be able to build a gym a mile away because it caters for a different market. So, you know, if you took Bristol, for instance, you know, the gym group and Pure Gym have several sites in the city centre, but they also have a number of sites surrounding Bristol. Are any of them within a mile of each other? No, but because they all service different communities within the Bristol environment. I mean, obviously, Bristol's quite a big city, but if you were going into a town that had 10,000 population, I mean, obviously, you would, you know, you might consider that to be a one gym town. And therefore, if, you know, there was, um, and it doesn't have to be a pure gym, I mean, it might be a, a JD sports gym. Um, you might then think twice about putting another site into a small community. And so actually the the total addressable market then is is effectively really large because you can actually have somewhat of the same low cost gyms, you know, pure gym or a gym group really next to each other in these even relatively smaller cities or towns. I mean P PWC and you know we um actually a couple of years ago um, reported on this in one of our annual reports. But PwC did some fairly detailed research into the size of the potential size of the low-cost market. And, and this ignores the small box gym that we also offer, which is obviously smaller than our full offering. The PwC report clearly shows that, you know, the low-cost market could over-double in size over the coming years. Um, so there, there certainly is plenty of sort of market penetration. And, of course, the reason for that is exactly as you've mentioned, that, you know, you can develop a number of sites, you know, in big cities I mean, a really good example of this is I, I can remember back in 2008 when I was doing some research on um, the biggest German operator, McFit. And at that point, they had eight sites in Berlin. Today, they have over 30 sites in Berlin, and they're all successful. So over the last 10 years, they've just, you know, taken more and more sort of gyms but they're well spread out some of them are in the city centers some of them are more suburban but it just shows the sort of potential and berlin is what about the same size as birmingham so it's big city obviously but it just shows the growth potential over time 
that they've managed to develop. And the same, you know, true for us. I mean, 10 years ago, we had one site in Brighton. We now have four. And I'm sure if we were talking in five years' time, we'd probably have six or seven. And did you see any difference in the return on on capital for those incremental stores in Brighton? No. I mean, they, they were all, because they're far enough apart not to be competing with each other, and McFit have seen the same in Berlin. They're still showing the same returns now, even though they've got 30 sites in Berlin, than they were you know, nearly 10 years ago. And they could effectively be better, right? Because if you've got more of a brand, you could actually get to break even quicker or have more starting members when you open. That's true. There is another factor, too, that... Um, is worth mentioning is also the multi-site membership. Um, so we have a product called Livit that enables you to get additional benefits. You pay another five pounds a month, but the major benefit is that it enables you to use any any site that we have. Now that is a huge differentiator with particularly small operators. So. You know, if you join one of our gyms in Brighton, you can pay another £5 and access them all or all of our sites in London. And, of course, that also includes our 184 sites throughout the UK. Now, McFit do the same in Berlin. So when you join one of their sites, you can pay a bit more money, but that then enables you to use all of the Berlin sites, which will give you a gym near where you live, one near your work. And, of course, it's it's the bigger operators. You know, the gym group has, what, nearly 25% market penetration, 65% of all the low-cost gyms that were opened last year were opened either by the gym group or Pure Gym. So those larger businesses are able to offer things that small operators can't provide. Can we walk through the process of of opening a a typical low cost gym? So what, what's the so I guess you have to go and find the location. What do you typically look for when you're opening a new plot? So there are all sorts of factors, and obviously I'm not going to give you any trade secrets, but there are obviously a number of factors. I mean, demographic size and quality is a start point. So there have got to be enough potential members in the location and particularly nearby. I mean, low-cost gyms tend to be community gyms. Most of their members will come from a mile or two of a site. I mean, we talked about earlier on, one tube stop is enough to generate a different market. So what you're interested in is the people who live or work immediately around your site. Then there are all sorts of obvious other things like um, visibility is a very important factor, the ability to get good signage. Certain locations, car parking will be vital. It's not terribly important in big cities and particularly in central London, but you know, in a more residential type of location like Horsham or Worthing, car parking will be absolutely essential. Then there's the actual building itself. You know, does it work? Can you easily convert it? 
And then there are, of course, the financial dimensions. What sort of rent, if you've got to, you know, be considering, does, is the landlord giving you a capital contribution or a rent-free period and so on? So there are all sorts of factors that will go into the final decision on whether to do a site or not. Mm. And so for the average, like you mentioned, the standard 15 to 16K square footage gyms, in your report, you mentioned it's 1.3 to 1.4 million pounds in in kind of capex to open. Roughly, how does that split between what you, the expenditure between equipment and I guess, what do you include in that number to get up and running? I mean, I have to be a little careful because we're a public company, so I can only comment on publicly available information. But I mean, we spend, as we've stated, about 300000 on gym equipment. And as you say, our typical fit-out cost, depending on the size, is about $1.3 million. Um, And as we've also quoted, that's about 150000 a site less than we were spending, you know, 10 years ago. And the reason for that is buying power. I mean, you know, because we buy a lot of equipment, gym equipment, obviously only being one aspect. I mean, we buy lots of lockers and flooring and air conditioning plant and lighting and so on and so forth. And, of course, we centrally buy that. And that enables us to, you know, negotiate good terms, you know, because, you know, we spend a lot of money on gym equipment. And it's also not just on new sites. Of course, with an estate of the size that we've got, I mean, every five years we're refurbishing them. So we're buying new gym equipment and new lockers and new boilers and so on and so forth. So, you know, we're... I mean, we open about 20 new gyms a year, so we're obviously buying for that, but we're also buying for the older estate because we have a very strong focus on, you know, maintaining the quality of the existing estate. Um, So it's that buying power. And again, it's something that a small operator can't compete with us on. I mean, we will be able to buy gym equipment far cheaper you know, inevitably than a smaller operator can. And how has the relationship with landlords changed as you've scaled? I think it's very market-driven. I mean, I launched the first low-cost gym in the UK in 2008. It was the start of a recession. You know, the property market was very helpful for low-cost gyms launching. And it's not surprising you know, that both Pure Gym and the Gym Group, which, as I said, um, you know, dominate the sector in terms of growth, you know, took advantage of those property prices that were available in the market. And, of course, the big advantage with low-cost gyms is their ability to convert all sorts of premises. So it's rather like at the moment where you see, unfortunately, more and more retail space becoming available you won't be surprised to know that we're spending more and more time converting retail space into gyms. The same way in 2008, we were converting a lot of office space into gym space. And, you know, low-cost gyms are very good users of that space. 
but need to be able to, you know, negotiate good deals with their landlords, as I said, mainly on rent, but but also on whatever contributions they can agree. And this is where covenant strength comes in so much and was one of the significant decisions or reasons that the Jim Group um, floated on the stock market in 2015, that it helped because our gearing level is much lower than most of our operators. Our covenant strength as a PLC is that much stronger, and therefore it enables us to secure the best property deals. You know, obviously, we, you know, we, we will continue to um, use that benefit. Now, you've got a similar situation as we come out of COVID-19. You will see the same sort of thing. There's a lot more property on the market. I think you will see rental rates start to come down, you know, which can only be good for the low-cost gym sector. How have you seen the landlord's contribution change over the years? Let's take from even 2008 to in better times, 2014, 15, and then versus today. How do you compare the different years? I think it, it, it very much depends on the size of the landlord. So you tend to find the larger landlords are more prepared to give capital contributions. Quite often, smaller landlords, of whom you know a lot of our landlords are small landlords. You know they they can't physically afford to give capital contributions, and therefore they tend to give more in rent free periods. So I suppose that's where you've seen more of a change. So the level of capital contribution from sort of 2010 onwards tended to reduce in size and there was more benefit coming from rent-free periods. But, you know, that is beginning to change back again as there is so much, you know, retail and other space available on the market. How many months rent-free do they typically give you, say, a small landlord? It very much depends on the negotiation, but something around 12 months. And and how long does it take you to get up and to get a gym open? Uh, typically, a small from one of those small landlords. So, I mean, we've openly commented it takes us about um, ten to twelve weeks to fit out a gym. So that's assuming we get a shell site that's clear and is supplied with you know normal services, gas, water, electricity, and so on. So it takes us about ten to twelve weeks to fit out a site. We start marketing the site about three months before it opens. And as I said, on average, we consider a site to have reached maturity within two years of opening. I mean, we, we've openly commented in our annual report that on average, our sites are doing better than break even within six months of opening. But that very much depends on the time of year a gym opens. I mean, unsurprisingly, a gym opening in January tends to fill up much quicker than one that opens in the summer. But the average is, you know, to reach a break-even point in under six months. But that doesn't, in- I guess, because do you not include the rent payment in that because you're getting 12 months typically rent-free as well? 
No, from an accounting point of view, you do. Though you don't physically pay the rent in terms of accounting standards, you still have to show the rent that you would normally pay. So you, you take the whole rent roll over the life of the lease and divide it by the length of the lease. So if it's a 15-year lease, you'll take the total rent, divide it by 15, and then you apply that to your accounts every month. And so given that I assume that the larger landlords have more property in London and these larger landlords are more likely to give you capital contributions, how does that change the attractiveness of opening new plots in London? I mean, it wouldn't be true to say that's necessarily the case. I mean, a lot of the retail parks, you know, outside London are owned by the big landlords. So, and as I said, if you looked at our landlord list, you know, it's quite diverse. You know, you've got people who own, you know, one property and we've got large pension funds that own, you know, that we might have sort of six or seven sites with, but they aren't necessarily in London. They can be spread all over the country. But would they, I guess my question was more around, were there previously more premium locations and more expensive locations pre-COVID that you wouldn't have been able to enter? But now post-COVID, with a decline in retail, plus potentially higher capital contribution from landlords, the economics actually make more sense for you to open a low-cost gym, even in higher quality retail parks or premium locations in London? That would be true, but one of, one of the factors, and to some degree this is unknown related to COVID-19, is how city centres are going to return. So one of the factors of a low-cost gym, which is open 24 hours a day, is the fact that 35% of its members have never used a gym before, and you attract a lot of people who work ship particularly shift workers. And because of the price point, you can attract, you know, everybody from, you know, people who work in shops and taxi drivers and so on and so forth, and right across the social spectrum. And therefore, you know, that has a huge impact on, well, particularly gym capacity. Because obviously, if you're able to attract people who are going to use the gym from 5 a.m. in the morning through till, you know, the early hours of the morning. You can just handle more volume. And that is one of the issues that nobody really knows what's going to happen post-COVID because particularly central London, obviously with, you know, retail particularly closed down and bars and restaurants closed down, and in fact more and more people are working from home, that may change to some degree the, the dynamics related to the type of property that you try to acquire. So there may be some sort of shift away from city centres more to you know residential, rural locations. But nobody really knows that yet. But I think it would be certainly, I mean, most people assume that the, the sort of concept of people working from home will be more prevalent in the future. Is that any issue in terms of from a planning perspective? Is it harder to get planning for 24 hours open gym in a residential area versus city? Not not with low-cost gyms because they, they're not noisy. 
So, you know, I mean, yes, there is background music that's played, but, you know, there's no food and beverage, there's no alcohol sold. So you don't have a lot of the sort of noise-related concerns about planning. I mean, you can see that from our estate. I mean, all of our sites, bar one, you know, operate 24-7. And obviously, they all have planning consent. It's an interesting point around how these, you know, the low-cost gyms attract 30% of them, of the users are not actually typical gym users. And if they can come at, say, very early in the morning or very late at night, it enables you to sweat those assets more, i.e. increase utilization, which increases the unit economics. So is it really crucial that you target those types of workers like shift workers or taxi drivers or people that can work in, I guess, really non-peak hours? The gym group, for instance, was originally backed by Bridges Ventures, who are a social investment fund. And the the reason they were particularly attracted to the gym group was because of this diverse demographic profile that its membership has. And it is absolutely true to say that we attract members who are on benefit at one end of the scale and multimillionaires at the other end of the scale and everything in between. So that is what's driving you know, a change in the marketplace. So just the same way that, you know, more people travel by plane, well, prior to COVID they did, was because of the likes of Ryanair and, and EasyJet. And it it is, a, it is a sort of very different market. It's the same with Lidl and Aldi. There's no social stigma to shopping in Lidl. You know, you're you're going there because you can buy a good quality product at a very competitive price. You know, it's why you you will see all sorts of people flying with EasyJet because it's cost effective to do so. And there is no social stigma with flying with EasyJet or Ryanair. And the same applies to low-cost gyms. You know, if you've got two people running on a treadmill next to each other, in kit, you wouldn't a clue, you know, you know whether one's a multimillionaire and has got a Ferrari in the car park, or you know somebody's come by bus, you know, because that's how they travel around. It, it, it's just a socially different type of environment, and of course, as part of that, I mean, obviously, price is a big driver, and I mean, the sector is very much described as you you've described it yourself as low cost, but it's more than just low cost. It's more about the fact you appeal to a wider cross-section of people. Now, by definition, you know, a lot of people who lower paid people who work in particularly retail and hospitality will be able to afford a low cost membership, but they quite often are shift workers. So they find a low cost gym very attractive because they can use it any time they want. They can use it after a shift, before a shift, etc. when most gyms are quite often closed. So it's just creating a new market, which is part of what is fueling, you know, the fact that PWCs, you know, believe the market has considerable growth potential. 
Mm. Well, if you take those 6,000 mature members, and I know it, it differs by by location, but how would you typically segment the customer base, either by demographic or income or job type how, for a typical gym? It, it would depend so much on where the gym is. I mean, you know, we've got gyms in, you know, next door to major council estates throughout the UK that are incredibly successful. We've also got sites like um, Guildford, for instance, in highly affluent areas. I mean, that's the whole benefit of low cost, that low cost doesn't just appeal to people with limited income. It does appeal to those people, but it also, you know, for instance, it appeals, as I said earlier on, to people who want to give up a £200 a month membership and be able to swap their current membership and spend the saving on membership on personal training. So people just have more flexibility and choice. How do you approach the pre-opening marketing strategy to get those 3,000 members on opening as quickly as possible? So, I mean, it's a fairly standard process. So as I said, one of the keys to it is we employ the local manager very early on. So he will tend or she will join us, generally speaking, about three months before a site opens. We start with awareness marketing. So things like, you know, sole distribution, raw mail drops, social media, leaflet dropping outside transport hubs and so on, to make sure that that market knows that we are coming in the next three months. And as part of that, we offer discounts, maybe waiving joining fees, maybe a lower price. If you commit to effectively signing a direct debit application prior to opening. And then that price will increase as you get closer to joining. And then in the month before a site opens, then there is a very intense marketing campaign, uh, similar to what's happened previously, uh, but also, you know, things like taking a lot of advertising sort of space in the local vicinity, stepping up social media activity and so on. And, of course, as I said earlier on, as an online business, our aim is to drive people to our website. And 94% of our members join online. So that's the sort of key factor. So the earlier you join before a gym opens, the less it costs you. And we get, we give some sort of guarantee that you will pay less for a period of time after the gym actually opens. And does that general manager have a budget they can spend in those three months to make sure that you manage the cost of that? Yeah, I mean, some as I said, some of the advertising costs are spent centrally. I mean, you know, we do a lot of TV advertising, particularly in January and February and so on. Um, so some of the marketing spend is inevitably central, but each manager has a budget to spend on activity locally. You know, as, as I said, things like, you know, handing out leaflets at the local train station and bus station and so on you know, will be organized locally. Does that marketing budget come under that 
1.4 million that you spend in opening or is that is that all the capex the 1.4 million is purely capex not including marketing spend the marketing spend is a pre-opening cost the marketing that is spent before the gym opens is capitalized as part of the 1.4 million but once the gym is open obviously marketing is part of its operational cost Right. And so most of those costs actually come in, in also the discounts in encouraging people to sign up pre-opening. Yeah. I mean, the, the Americans have a very good and probably better description of the market. I mean, they refer to our market as low cost, high volume. And that actually probably describes it better than just purely low cost. Because it, it's a little bit like you know, as we talked about, like Little and Aldi. I mean, how do they compete with the likes of Tesco? They don't sell as many products, but the products they do sell, they buy in huge bulk. They will buy more, you know, I don't know, cornflakes than... Fewer and deeper skews. Yeah. So the description of our sector as low-cost, high-volume is probably a better description of it. Yeah. And so, John... When looking at economies of scale in in this low cost, high volume game, like does the scale benefits really come down to the lease cost, which is you know going by the economics that you guys report, it's roughly twenty five percent of of revenue, with the other twenty to twenty five percent roughly being you know the the opex of running it, but. Does the benefit of scale when you look at that really come from actually the land, relationship with the landlords, the discounts and better deals you may get as a as a larger player? I mean, it really goes across the whole sector. So, you know, I mean, as we talked about, you know, in your capex costs, I mean, obviously, the more gym equipment you buy, the better deals you can strike. But it, you know, it goes right across the capex field. So, you know lockers, air conditioning, plant boilers, and so on and so forth. You know, we're buying a lot of all of those and and replacing them, as I said earlier on, every five years. So that's sort of part of it. But also it applies to a lot of your operational costs. I mean, energy, for instance, you know, if you commit to buying certain levels of electricity and, and water and gas and so on, you know, you can do deals based on volume. You know, something that we can do, but, a you know, a single operator, I mean, won't be able to do to the same degree. So I think purchasing power really does come right across all aspects of CapEx and operational cost. Hmm. And when a gym is a maturity, say 6,000 members, because you have this no contract or the local sector has a no contract policy, how do you see churn and retention evolve at that mature at the mature stage? So churn, I think, is isn't a particularly relevant metric for a low cost gym because of the way low cost gyms operate. So we don't have a membership contract. I mean, as we have quoted, the average life first period of membership of one of our members is 10.1 months. But churn is, I mean, of course, we monitor it, but it is a terribly important metrics because there are all sorts of aspects of a low-cost gym that are just different. So 
25% of our members, for instance, in most of our sites are students. They come and go three times a year. They come in October, they leave at Christmas, they come back again afterwards and so on. So they're not real attrition because they come and go. You get members who want to use the gym in the winter and the autumn, but want to run outside or cycle outside, you know, when the weather's better. That's fine in a low-cost environment. And we we track, in our view, more important things like returning members. So 25% of our members joining every month are people coming back to the business. I suppose the way we look at it, if you said to somebody like Little or Aldi or EasyJet, you know, is churn important? Their focus is returning customers, and so is ours. Now, whether they stay for a long period of a membership or whether they come and go actually doesn't matter as long as they return. And therefore, that is our big focus. Our focus is much more orientated towards that than it is just to membership churn. And so you don't really see there's a period, like when you get to full capacity, 6,000, if you have 20% that churn, you don't really have to go out and look to acquire those customers or new customers again to replenish that base. It's just more of a highly liquid or quite free-flowing transactional business it, it it is inevitably we have peaks um you know i mean gyms are busier in january and february and march than they are in july and august i mean that's not surprising so inevitably you you get sort of different periods of time we monitor i mean particularly during busy periods like january that we aren't overstretching our capacity because as i said earlier because there is no membership contract, you can leave at any point. And if you're not happy because you cannot get onto a treadmill, you know, why why stay? So, you know, we, we watch those sort of things very carefully. But of course, it is one of the benefits of a 24-7 environment. The other factor you also get, I mean, I mentioned that 35% of our members, and that is a consistent figure that carries on, you know, all the time. So if you took our oldest gym in Hounslow, the number of people who were first-time gym users joining in 2019 is more or less exactly the same as it was in 2008. And, of course, that's the other factor within churn, that people move out of the area. You know, students leave, come and go, but, you know, people who live in flats. And also there's the age profile of our members. I mean, the bulk of our members are between 18 and 45, skewed by students. But, you know, the average age is about 30. So... That age group profile is much more transient, you know, than somebody of my age, for instance. I mean, I always use myself as a good example. I mean, when I was in my 20s, I never stayed anywhere more than 18 months. You know, I've lived in the same house for nearly the last 10 years, you know, but I'm 67 now. And I don't move around as much as I did then. And so just I wanted to ask on how 
you look at the difference in the smaller formats and and really you know i think there's you mentioned six to seven you know thousand square feet for the smaller versus 15 16k for the for the bigger ones how how does that change the unit economics of the smaller formats so if you went and looked at one of well you you can't see one at the moment because they're all closed down but if you went to see one of our small box gyms when you walk in you'd be quite surprised they look bigger than you were probably expecting them to be the amount of gym equipment isn't terribly different what is different is the way the changing facilities are work up work so a typical small box gym will tend to be in a much more of a residential type of location. And therefore, a lot of its membership base tends to go home to shower. So they may use lockers and so on and so forth, but but they don't necessarily change in the facility. Now, that doesn't mean a small box doesn't have showers. It does. But it has generally speaking, a unisex changing area with lockers and everything else. But a much higher proportion of its membership will change at home. But the amount of gym equipment actually is very similar. So the metrics are are just different. And that's a factor that we've sort of seen for quite some time. I mean, if you take our second site in uh, Guildford, which is in a residential location and very close to Surrey University. We saw right from day one that you'd go into the gym at six six o'clock at night and be absolutely packed and there'd be hardly anybody in the changing rooms. And that was because people turned up, changed, and then went home and had a shower. And we've always seen that in residential locations. So the the small box... You're not likely to see a small box gym in the city centre. You're more likely to see them in residential towns. Smaller markets, you know, might be 10, 15,000 people, but you will still see lots of gym equipment. And they're much cheaper to build per square foot than the ones in the in the bigger cities because of the I mean, cost the first, of- the first ones that we've done have quite often been sort of retail warehouses is would be the way I'd describe them. So they're relatively easy and straightforward to um, convert. They come with plenty of car parking. They tend to be quite visual. And of course, one of the big, the big and this is a benefit low cost has always brought, is the footfall, because it is high volume. It brings a lot of footfall to developments, which is why you know, we tend to be very popular on retail developments because we bring a lot of customers, you know, to the site. And and you're seeing, you know, part, some of them are mixed leisure schemes, you know, where you've got temping bowling and cinemas and restaurants, but you also see low-cost gyms on retail parks, you know, with shared car parking and so on. Which also increases your bargaining power with the landlord and if it's bringing more footfall to those other businesses on the park sometimes you know i mean as we've done on a number of occasions we've converted retail space i mean we've done a number of sainsbury's sites where you know we've taken parts of a sainsbury's store i mean the one at um 
um, Spurs football ground, for instance, a new development there. You know, our gym's part of a Sainsbury store. The same's true of Murrayfield outside the Scottish rugby ground. You know, we're part of the Sainsbury store. <clears throat> and of course, again, low cost works very well with, you know, somebody like Sainsbury's. We both bring customers to each other. Uh, we can share the car park and so on and so forth. So, you know, it's, and, you know, we, we've done recently done quite a few conversions of, you know, Little and Aldi. They have, may have moved to bigger premises somewhere else in the town. And then, you know, we've taken a, either part of or the whole of a, a smaller, you know, little Aldi unit. And is the OPEX as a percentage of sales much lower than the bigger plots because you have less staff? I guess you have like what, four or five PTs and then maybe just one manager for a small box? Yeah, some of the operational metrics are, are, are lower. Um, yeah, some of the things like staffing. No, don't make it dramatic. And of course, because the space is less, I mean, you know, rates are less, the energy costs are lower and so on. So, you know, yes. I, mean, well, I guess, I guess the other, more broadly, John. Also, the question is, you know, as you do scale the gym group and you increase your penetration in the market, how do you see the return on capital changing for new plots? We set ourselves, you know, a thirty percent return hurdle. So, when we're looking at any new site, whether it's a small box or a standard site, we're looking for a thirty percent return. However, we take into account all of the local metrics related to that particular site, so the rent and so on and so forth, and how much we think we can charge and how many members the site will take. So all of those factors are taken into account when, you know, we decide. I mean, we're not, I mean, you know, look at our reports. I mean, we've been showing over 30% return on investment since we first started. So, you know, we're not seeing any change to those metrics. And so let's say we're looking, it's 2030, we're looking back, and that metric is, let's say, 20%. What do you think the reason could be why... That could decline. I mean, there could be all sorts of things, most of which I don't know about yet. But I mean, competition could be. I mean, if there was in uh, increased competition levels, that might have an impact on, you know, pricing. But you mean from pure gym? You mean they they could decrease their prices, or other low cost players could could decrease? Yeah, or a, or a, a, an overseas operator. I mean, they haven't done it yet, but. You know, somebody like Basic Fit might appear from Europe or Planet Fitness from America. Do you think that's likely? I think it's probably because the Pure, pure Gym and the Gym Group are so dominant, I, I think it is fairly unlikely. But, it, but, you know, of course it could happen. But anyway, their pricing elsewhere is similar to ours anyway. So I'm not sure that's going to have an impact on price. I mean, one of the questions a lot of people ask at the moment is, will online exercise? So with COVID, more people are exercising at home. Does that mean when gyms can reopen that people will continue to work out at home? Some people will, of course, but I think the vast majority will go back. Now, we've we've already had an experience of that. 
So when there was the first lockdown and we reopened, we saw people come back in droves. So I think online will have an impact, but I don't think it's that likely to be that profound. And just on the point of barriers to entry then, because like you said, Planet Fitness or Basic Fit could enter if they wanted to, but is there any is there any real reason apart from the fact that, that yourselves and Pure Gym are so large that it would deter other players entering? I mean, there are definitely some barriers to entry and um, you won't be surprised I've been asked that question by um, uh, market analysts since 2008. The, ma- the major ones we see are purchasing power and we've talked about how, you know, size know it differentiates covenant strength is a huge impactor on not not only the ability to secure sites but to secure the best sites where you're likely to achieve the the best return marketing we have the marketing muscle to be able to do things like investing in tv advertising and so on a single operator can't contemplate that sort of cost technology you know, our membership platform, our website, you know, we're constantly investing in technology. And we're not just talking about, you know, a few hundred thousand pounds. We spend millions of pounds on tech every year. Again, a single operator can't do that type of thing. So it's not one thing. It's a combination impact of all of those things, purchasing power, covenant, technology, marketing and then we covered the other area a product like livid you know a one-off operator can't provide full sites that you can join in brighton we can Um, so i think it as i said it's not one thing it's a combination of all of those things Mm. and then you've got the other players like sports direct where maybe it's not their pure focus in doing gyms that doesn't make it as strong a proposition yeah, I mean, you know, and, you know, they're a good example. I mean, obviously with Mike, Ashley's backing, they are a significant operator, but they don't have many gyms and they don't buy much gym equipment. So that could change, of course, but that, that is the case as it stands at the moment. Mm. John, last questions, and that's just around European opportunity or even US, if you know, if possible. We've seen Pure Gym recently purchase, I think, Fitness World, which is a Danish business. How do you look at opportunities to move into Europe? I mean, it, it, it's certainly an opportunity, and it certainly is something you know the gym group will look at. I mean, as you know, we had the opportunity to float on the stock market in 2015. And at the point, actually, we were about to move into Europe and we had to take the decision of whether we decided to go into Europe at that point or leave it till later because it would have confused the sort of IPO process. So we decided to go for the IPO process and not, not you know, we were about to buy a number of businesses in Europe. Since then, we've had distractions like Brexit and COVID-19, which have come along to test us. 
So, you know, the gym group hasn't bought anything outside the UK, but I, I think, um, you know, it's quite possible it may de- decide to go into Europe. I mean, and, and, of course, it doesn't have to be Europe. I mean, it could be another part of the world. I mean, low cost is still not necessarily evident in all sorts of countries throughout the world. Could you enter the US? Could be. Could be Singapore. It could be Australia. It could be South Africa. I mean, you think it could work anywhere, effectively? I don't see, I mean, there's no reason why not. And of course, you know, markets like, well, I mentioned a few, Australia, New Zealand, um, South Africa provide, you know, have very strong connections with sport and leisure generally. So, but clearly Europe would be the logical first step. But I wouldn't assume it's going to just be Europe. Why did you choose to list the business versus stay private, take private equity money? We we could have, um, I mean, we were private equity backed. Uh, We'd had two previous private equity owners, uh, Bridges Ventures and um, Phoenix Equity Partners, um, and and could have done another round of private equity. I think there have been certain benefits of listing. Covenant strength is one of them. Um, I mean, a lot of the money we raised on IPO was used to pay down debt, um, so that has helped strengthen Pure Gym have a similar strength though, right? And their PE earned. So does that make a difference? Yeah. I mean, our, well, you can see from sort of cash burn, um, you know, the gym group's cash burn during COVID is dramatically less than Pure But do gym. you get better pods for that then? Or, do you, or I guess you, you, you're better capitalized, therefore you can get better negotiation yeah, it, power it, landlords. It, it makes our property covenant much stronger. Uh, but, but you know, not just Pure Gym. I mean, compared with anybody else in the sector, because we are the only listed business, you know, on in on the main market um, in the UK. I mean, uh, Basic Fit are listed on the Amsterdam market, and Planet Fitness are listed on the New York market. But in terms of the UK, with we are the only listed entity. So covenant strength is one of the benefits. Uh, the other benefit is also certainly attracting good quality people. You know, there is a certain attraction of working for a public company. Um, and and then there is the whole sort of attraction of share ownership. I mean, all of our team benefit. They all have the option of acquiring stock on an attractive basis and also they receive um, as part of their sort of um, bonus scheme you know received stock on a beneficial basis as well so you know those are things that you know as private equity back business you know we wouldn't have and also I think our investors have a longer-term view on things. I mean, private equity tends to be fairly short-term, whereas most of our investors are long-term uh, institutional investors. Last question, that's it. And, and you know, without getting too many trade secrets, what is the country that you could see yourself living and operating the gym group in that's not the UK? 
What's most attractive to you? You mentioned Australia and, and South Africa, which I think was interesting ones, but is there anything else that you think is particularly attractive? I think there are markets in Europe generally. I don't think you know there are a number that would make sense. You know, there are some markets that are more saturated than others. So Germany, for instance, you know, is you know, has a lot of low cost operators. On the other hand, Germany is a big country with 80 million population. So, um, you know, Holland's much the same. I mean, it's very dominated by basic fit. So, you know, I'm not sure it would make sense as appearing in Germany and Holland. But apart from that, you know, there are lots of, you know, open space. Mm -hmm.